Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Folks, I don't know about you, but I love to celebrate the successes of others, especially when they're homegrown right here in Louisiana. They're homegrown right here throughout the metropolitan area. I get very excited about that, especially when they get national recognition. This individual did get this national recognition. Progressive Grocer has been a voice of the retail food industry since 1922. And Progressive Grocer has found that Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana family-owned and operated grocery chain serving the Gulf Coast, has been recognized as one of the top independent grocery stores in the country, 7,000 team members, locations in three different states. Uh, congratulations uh, to the Rouse organization. And Donnie Rouse, owner of Rouse's, joins us now. Donnie, uh, welcome to the show and congratulations. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, thank you very much. Uh, looking forward to uh, speaking with you today. I know you guys don't go to work day in and day out thinking about the recognition but you know it it is a testament to not only your leadership but the men and women that work for you each and every day uh, trying to deliver a quality product to to the consumers throughout your respective markets right absolutely this is a a big deal for our team members to get this recognition on, on the national level We've, we've won uh, best supermarkets in, in all of our other local markets that we have stores in, but to be recognized with the thousands of other independent grocers throughout the country, and then again by Progressive, who's been covering the food industry for grocery stores for over 100 years, um, it, it's, it's definitely one of the uh, top honors for, for our team members. So, Donna, you've been in and around this business a long time. I think you're third generation. Is that correct? That is that is correct. Third generation. What motivates you every morning when you get up? And, you know, you've got 7,000 team members uh, there. And I think, what do y'all have? Somewhere between 50 and 60 locations throughout three states. What motivates you on a daily basis? Yeah, so we have, we have 64 stores throughout, throughout our three states. Um, I, I think uh, you know really, really what, what kind of kind of gets me going is is our team members knowing that um, you know I have to do my job to make sure that my team members are successful and they can provide for them their family like I'm able to provide for my family. So just making sure that they have the tools and the knowledge to serve our customers, making sure that we're getting the the right products in the stores, the right quality, we have the right price, so that. The team can be successful, so the company can be successful. Uh, all you know, each seven thousand of our seven thousand team members, you know, they, they they work for us as as their career. They chose to come to Rouse's, 
and that, that's a great honor that they want to work for, for my family, and uh, it's, it's my job to make sure that they are successful. And I know you all take it very serious because as uh, the former chief deputy and the sheriff in Jefferson Parish, um, you had a guy, I cannot remember his name, and I apologize. He worked for you uh, providing uh, security at the stores, doing assessment for y'all, understanding that your grocery stores are actually, in some sense, in a big sense, critical infrastructure. Because in the aftermath of the challenge, the challenges that are presented with hurricanes and storms and otherwise, uh, people don't survive uh, without y'all there. And you've gone through the thick and thin of the financial downturn, uh, every storm that passes, some in which your stores have been damaged. Um, it's getting, do you feel like it's kind of getting more and more challenging? It, um, you know, so we're we're the, the, the first to open after a, a storm. You know, we're the last ones to close, and we're able to do that because our team members want to do it. They want to serve the communities. We're not we're not forcing our team to get into the stores to hurry up and open. But they, they know that the grocery store is vital for each community, and um, without us, a community can struggle. We, we want to be there right after the storm with ice and water and bread and sandwich meat to get everyone else feeling you know, a sense of home while they're repairing their homes and their properties after the storms. So it's part part of our culture, part of our DNA. We've we've done it, you know, for sixty years back from what my grandfather and my dad they they put that culture into place, and it's it's grown with us in state. And it's not easy. I mean, you make it sound like it is, but it's not because each and every one of your team members have a family member or their own families that may have been put at risk during that period of time, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, many of the, the team members, they, they, they will evacuate uh, and then come right back or they will stay behind um, and while their family evacuates. So, you know, it's, it's a definitely a challenging time. Um, I'm, I always stay, stay behind uh, for, for the storms to make sure, you know, if I'm here, you know, I, I want my team members to see that I'm here and, and I'm, I'm in the stores with them right after right after some sort of disaster and Doing, doing the best we can to serve our customers. Although it doesn't rise to the level of uh, disaster uh, for some, but for others it might, the shortage of crawfish this season. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it is a disaster. I'm just going to be honest. I mean, it's, right. You right. Know, <laughs> how have y'all had to uh, work through this through this challenge, this is this is one that's a little unusual, right? It, it it probably hasn't happened many times in your career. No, I have I have not seen this with with the crawfish market before. Um, but what we started this year really is is focusing on some of our other combo platters, uh, such as you know shrimp, snow crabs, uh, Dungeness crabs, and, and having those in platters with the uh, with the corn and potatoes. Um, those those start out from like sixty nine six dollars ninety nine cents each and going up. That way, our customers can still get that seafood taste in, into their mouth and, and kind of you know settle some of that craving. Uh, but we we have seen crawfish prices come down over the last few weeks. We have seen the quantities uh, beginning to increase. Uh, I believe we're five ninety nine live uh, for crawfish in our stores today. Uh, but we're we're expecting the catch to to continue increasing in in March and April and and then, and then parts of parts of May. Do we get a sense that maybe this is it possible for the season to be elongated? 
you know, not knowing exactly how this works, but could that possibly happen? We're we're not we're not sensing that the uh, pond crawfish season will be will be longer. Uh, we are hoping for a really good spillway season. Uh, we're just starting to see some of those spillway crawfish come in, but those are usually typically a little bit later in the year. So it it, it is possible. Normally we'll have crawfish until uh, about July fourth, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of end of June or so. They'll start to they'll start to get a little harder uh, to where they're not as good to you know as easy to eat and as enjoyable. Um, but you know we're, we're hoping we can make it to uh, to beginning of June this year. And I know that you have a sensitivity. Um, I've heard you talk about it. I've seen some of the stuff that you've written about uh, on it as well to local products and local producers, and you try to highlight their products as much as possible. What are you hearing from uh, the crawfish industry folks uh, right now? Um, so, you know, we, we're hearing that the catch is, is coming back. Um, a lot of these, a lot of these farmers, uh, start out the year with, with a, with a full crew, uh, ready to farm and, and harvest the crawfish. A lot of, a lot of those people kind of, um, went and found, found other jobs or, or went back home as, you know, if they were seasonal workers. So, you know, we may see a little shortage in the, uh, in, in the labor that, that could affect the, uh, the amount of crawfish, uh, being harvested. But it's it's definitely hard for those for those fishermen uh, this time of year. This is how they how they make their living, and uh, w- without that quantity of crawfish, it, it will be difficult for them. And Donnie, I know that you have preferred you know folks that you you have to establish relationships with these particular farmers, and I think you do so in in, in the shrimp industry as well. What, what are you hearing from the shrimp industry? Because they, you know, the the imports that are coming in seem to be problematic for them. Uh, and they've had a kind of a rough road as well. Yeah, the the imports um, that, that are coming into the United States is, is a disaster for for our industry. Uh, you know, we we focus on our uh, local shrimp. We're not gonna we're not gonna sell any of these imported shrimp that some of the other retailers are selling. Uh, we, we want our shrimp uh, fishermen to thrive, to to bounce back. Um, we do have plenty shrimp available currently, um, but just. Just, just the imported shrimp. They, they don't eat right. You're not exactly sure what you're getting. You know, we're a Louisiana company. We support our Louisiana fishermen and our farmers and our manufacturers. Oh, we got a little bit of a technical glitch there. I'm sorry, but uh, so yeah, obviously, you, the last I heard is you don't sell that farm product, right? We're supporting our our Louisiana fishermen, our Louisiana farmers, and manufacturers. Uh, you know, we're born and raised here. We're a Louisiana company. Louisiana comes first for us. Absolutely. Final thoughts. Um, you know, um, again, thank you to our team members. It really shows the hard work for winning this national award. It's, it's a big deal. Shows it to our customers that you know we're trying to do everything we can to to be the best for them. Uh, we're watching other retailers throughout the country bringing new ideas to our stores. Uh, we we want to stay number one on customer service and quality and, and price. And, and we're here. Um, we're local. We'll always be here. And, you know, just, just again, thank you for the hard work our team members put forth. Absolutely. 7,000 employees, strong organization. Um, 
You know, I managed 1,700 at my all-time high. I can't even imagine what it's like at 7,000. <laughs> but it's, it is quite the task, and we are very proud of the Rouse organization, and uh, and con- we wish you continued success and congratulations on this uh, incredible uh, recognition. I appreciate you having me on today. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. That's Donnie Rouse, owner of Rouse's Markets, folks. 64 stores in three states, 7,000 employees. An organization, Louisiana-grown, Louisiana-proud. We should be very proud of their success. We'll be right back. 504-260-1870 on the Oakland Heart Jewelers Talk and Text Line. When we return, we'll visit with Tan Trung, WWL multimedia journalist with his new podcast. Stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink... What you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Folks, a lot of people on the text line got listeners out in Pensacola saying, please ask Donnie Rouse to open a store in Pensacola. Got others saying they shop no place else. Others uh, congratulating him, wanting to share and celebrate the successes of Donnie Rouse and all of the folks that work for him. And a number of texts wanting to shout out appreciation for the staff at a number of different stores as well. Joining us on the line, Tan Trung, WWL Multimedia Journalist, just released a new podcast. Uh, Tan, welcome to the show. Neil, happy Friday. Thank you for having me on. Tan, this was a tough one. Um, This has a lot of emotion uh, around it, uh, and for good reason, for sure. I think that especially living in New Orleans and Louisiana in general, we call our county's parishes here for a reason. Catholicism, the Catholic Church runs through this entire state, but particularly in New Orleans, it's always been reliably Catholic. But as we're going through the decades here, just looking at what's happening with the Catholic Church, the Archdiocese of New Orleans is facing a tough situation in of itself, and it's seeing less people in their churches and it's seeing, obviously, because of that, less money in the offerings, and it has to make some very tough decisions. So last year, the Archbishop of the Archdiocese of New Orleans announced that there will be roughly more than a dozen parishes or churches that will be consolidated, closed, or merged, and that's one of the largest restructuring plans that we've seen since the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And what I really wanted to do with this podcast was focus it on one of the churches that is under that plan. And it's, as you mentioned at the top of the block here, it's a very emotional time for this church, and that's Our Lady Star of the Sea. Not so much what they said, uh, but reading between the lines and kind of how they said it, um, a lot of their own personal identity is shared with Our Lady Star of the Sea. And, And you hear that over and over and over again. Yeah, and I think that that could probably be broadened out to many of the parishes and churches that we have in the Archdiocese of New Orleans and probably throughout the state of Louisiana, too. People have a very personal relationship, and because we have so many generations of families and people here that 
were born and raised in Louisiana and the greater New Orleans area have never left. And that means they've stayed with their church probably their whole life. And when that church goes away, which is what's happening with Our Lady Star of the Sea and more than a dozen other churches here in, in the New Orleans area, then that takes away a part of your identity. And what I wanted to do was really nail down what, what that truly means on the parish level, the church level. Because when we look at this as a headline of, oh, the church is struggling, oh, because of the sex abuse scandals, I, I understand all of that, but I think we need to understand what happens when a particular parish or a church leaves the neighborhood. And that's what Our Lady Star of the Sea, which is located in the St. Rock neighborhood of New Orleans, uh, historically a, a generally a, a mixed neighborhood, but predominantly African-American. And Our Lady Star of the Sea is a predominantly black Catholic church. And as you said, when you listen to this podcast, I think you can read between the lines of what they're feeling and how they feel that decision coming down from the Archdiocese of New Orleans is affecting them. And they feel that race and some of the socioeconomic issues that often come into play is a factor in this. I guess when you are facing cutback management, um, you tend to sanitize things a little bit, right? And and yeah. I guess the way you sanitize this is that just, well, it's just a place that you go worship. You can go worship at a different place. But it's really, as these ladies articulated, some that have been going there um, since the 60s, uh, 39 years in another case, and I forgot what the other one had, had said. Um, it's a lot more than that. And, and they feel a, a little sense of resentment um, that, that a lot of folks are trying to make this so simplistic. Yeah, they, you know, often as we take a look at, you know, what drives a particular business, and in this case, you know, the Archdiocese of New Orleans and really at large the, the, the Catholic Church, it, you know, it comes down to people and money. And you can boil it down to those terms, but, you know, when you get to the ground level and you, you, you take a look at, Many of these folks have had their children baptized here. Perhaps many of their family members have had weddings there. And then at the end of life, they've had to have their funerals there. That's going away. And that's something that you can't easily replace. And when you feel that the church, and I'm speaking on behalf of some of the parishioners I spoke with, uh, Our Lady Star of the Sea, when they have placed their, their faith and their money and their time and dedication to that church, and when they feel that that has been repaid with, well, we're going to take a look at the bottom line of you don't have enough people and you're not bringing enough offerings. And I'm really ba- boiling it down to basic brass tacks here. But that, that that's how they feel on the parish level is that they, they feel that they've been part of a formula uh, that hasn't really taken into consideration the emotional and really the, the faith investment that they've placed into this parish, which saw something similar after Hurricane Katrina was teetering during and after Hurricane Katrina, but they managed to kind of bring it back. But now, because of you know the bankruptcy that the Archdiocese of New Orleans is working through, uh, they are now, they feel that they are kind of part of a calculation that doesn't take into consideration all the investment they made uh, throughout these years. Did you get the sense that, uh, on the one hand, they they want to place blame based on some of the obvious stuff that's been reported on, right, uh, that has created mm-hmm. some of the financial challenges that the archdiocese is uh, experiencing at the present time. But by the same token, they're very uncomfortable in doing so. 
Yeah, and I, you know, I think that that's part of you know the 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 logic of quote unquote good Catholics. We have a good and a healthy amount of. <laughs> Uh, We're burdened guilt. with a lot of guilt, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, oh boy, you know that—that's part of life. I mean, I'm, you know, full disclosure. I, I was raised Catholic. The Catholic Church, Catholic Charities, brought my family over to the U.S. from Vietnam. So, I, you know, I've been part of the Catholic Church for a long time. But you know, along with that comes with the Catholic guilt, and I think that they're they're hesitant to kind of openly, you know air their their grievances but I, I think if people listen to this podcast they'll, they'll hear that because what, what i found remarkable is the three parishioners whom i profiled you know they spoke very openly and honestly about their reservations with what the archdiocese is doing and some of the challenges that the catholic church is facing and i think that you know as adults uh, you have to come to the table when you're facing these very hard decisions with an honest conversation and they're very open with what they believe is happening with the Catholic Church locally here, but also with the Catholic faith in general. And, you know, the, the folks that I spoke with, I said this in the podcast, they're not fair-weather Catholics. They're very dedicated. So when you have a situation where you have very you know, diehard Catholics being very concerned about what's happening, I think you should take a listen. Uh, and, you know, that, that that's up to the, the leadership to, to kind of take a listen to that. But you know, sometimes when you take a listen to what's happening on the ground level, uh, that that'll pay off in the end. And I think that's what they feel is the resentment that is that they haven't been listened to. And I, you know, they were very grateful to get their opportunity to, to speak their story. Um, but I think there's a larger issue when you take a look at what's happening with the Catholic Church locally and broadly as well. Hey, Tan, I lost the, the connection there for a moment. Um, and I know the ladies articulated that they were working hard, looking at the finances of the parish. Do they still have some hope that they might be able to save Our Lady Star of the Sea? It, it depends, Newell. I think that some of the you know two of the ladies whom I spoke with they're they're very in tune with the finances of of the church. And what I found remarkable is just the amount of money. And you know, just to give people a little bit of context, you know, some of the in I think anybody living in the greater New Orleans area understands how much property insurance has gone up. That has affected the church as well. Um, but what I really wanted to kind of nail down was, you know, exactly how much money do they need? And, you know, they came up with a figure of roughly they were taking in about $6,000 in offerings per week. And I was told that they needed about $8,500 per week to get that. And there's just no way with the, church population that they have to, to reach that point. And to answer your question, some of them believe that there is still a chance, but if you take a look at the numbers, the, the numbers don't lie. And it, it's hard to see how they eventually get off this list. And to be fair, the archbishop, when he mentioned and he issued this list last year in the fall, said that two parishes that were uh, in, in struggling status were able to kind of turn things around and were able to stay up and running. Uh, I, I don't, I don't see that happening for Our Lady Star of the Sea from some of the parishioners and what they've told me. But some still have faith, and I think obviously that that is the cornerstone of Catholics is to have faith when times are tough. Um, but if you look at what the announcement and what it says, uh, I, I think this comes down very hard for Our Lady Star of the Sea and some of the other churches that will be merged and, and closed. And then, you know, as this continues to wind down as well, um, there, there's a little resentment of them kind of being assigned 
to another parish, right? I guess, I don't yeah. know if resentment is the right word, but a little uneasiness about that. And, and, um, and, and they feel like um, there's not this high level of sensitivity to them because it's, it's very personal. You know, I mean, it, the assignment may not, may not fit for them, right? True. And, you know, many of these, these folks came to the, the parish for personal reasons, whether they grew up in the neighborhood, um, whether they're, they had a family member that, that was baptized there. So, you know, the, the, the church in which you attend uh, is a very personal decision, and that's a decision that they don't want to relegate or delegate to the archdiocese when, when it comes to, you know, the eventual church they'll go to. One lady whom I spoke with, Teresa Poche, she's been a longtime member of the choir. And she says, you know, if that choir is assigned to another church or decides to go to another church, that's where I'll be because that's her main ministry. But, you know, that, that's just an example of what goes into the, the equation of where you go to, to attend Mass and, you know, where you put your time and money physically. And they don't want to give that to the archdiocese now, especially after they feel that the archdiocese disregarded what they feel is a the voice that they sh- that should be heard first. But, uh, you know, the, the archdiocese, the archbishop was very clear. He said, look, when, you know, these decisions are not very easy and they're very difficult. And when we made these decisions, we wanted and we heard all these considerations from the parishes. But, you know, it's a different story when you hear it from the parishioners point of view. Was there any conversation? I didn't hear much of this. Uh, uh, did anyone have um a thought process about concern, you know, obviously I, I think they believe that these properties will be sold, right? Um, as to what, what becomes is of the physical structure. Nobody on the parish level knows what's going to happen with, with the property. And, and as you mentioned, some of the folks, uh, our lady started to see said that, you know, when it was assessed when for, insurance purposes uh, on the two blocks in the St. Rock neighborhood where Our Lady started to see stands. There used to be a a school there as well, so it encompasses a a good chunk of real estate in the St. Rock neighborhood. Uh, They estimated it's around $4 million. I mean, again, that is just an estimate. That's not a solid number. But um, when you take a look at some of what's happening in those areas of New Orleans where you're seeing more development in neighborhoods that have kind of gone to the wayside in, in the last few decades. Um, that that can be seen as an opportunity, and we've seen that the church, the, the archdiocese, has been selling property uh, for multiple purposes. But because you're seeing dwindling numbers, and you've had more than 200 pieces of property under the archdiocese for a long time, but you don't have the people or personnel to support it or the finances, then you have to do something with that property. And, and I believe that, and many parishioners believe that eventually this property that, where Our Lady Star to Sea stands will be sold. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how this all turns out. I, you really feel for these ladies because obviously they've invested so much of themselves, their emotions and everything else uh, to the church. Um, in general and through the physical structure of the church right yeah. and yeah. and and to hear to hear their stories is 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 really heart wrenching yeah and i think you know what's important to 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 view here is to not to look at it you know just as an isolated case and i'm, I'm you know i'm not doom and gloom here but uh, i do see 
and, and just from my personal experience here, you know, I attend a particular parish that, that doesn't have many people at all. I attend 8 o'clock Mass on Sunday at my parish, and we're lucky if we get 15 people. Uh, and it's a relatively new Mass, but I, I, this is not an isolated situation for just this particular church in this particular parish. You know, if you're a Catholic, and, I, and there's many, and there used to be many more, uh, in the New Orleans area, this is a concern for people who might want to be understanding of what's going to happen in the future, because it may be this church this time around, but the numbers as a whole don't look great for you know the Catholic faith and the Archdiocese of New Orleans here. So it's not just an isolated case, in my view. Yeah, uh, that, that'll, that continues to reveal itself, um, what little that we get to read in the news about it. Um, yeah day in and day out another great job uh ton where can they find uh the podcast uh the podcast is the ton report they can just find it anywhere they get their podcast it's on all podcast platforms just search for my first name that's t-h-a-n-h report and they can listen to it there it's also on the odyssey app and if you go to the wwl radio website there's a story there on the church closings you can click on it and there's a link to listen to the episode there as always, great work. Tan Trung, WWL Multimedia Journalist. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend, my friend. No, thanks again. Take care. All righty. We'll be right back. 504-260-1870. It's No Filter Friday. We'll go to the talk lines. Anything you want to talk about, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. We'll go to the talk line. Irving, you're up. What say you? Hey, good afternoon. Uh, I see Governor Landry wants to get his tentacles into the sewage and water board and do an investigation. Two of the things that the mayor has done right is Ms. Kirkpatrick with the NOPD and Mr. Corbin as the head of the sewage and water board. Now, Mr. Landrew previously had, as a political favor, put a person in charge of the sewage and water board that did not have an engineering degree it was a political appoint, appointee as a favor to get his retirement jacked up because government retirement is based on your final or your highest 36 months. But the Sewage and Water Board right now, uh, dealing with limited uh, capabilities, at least now they can come out real time and tell you which pumps are working, you know, and which systems are working. Previously, a lot of times systems were not turned on during a flood because nobody was there to turn them on. I'll give it to you. I don't I don't necessarily disagree with you. In fact, yeah, uh, either yesterday or the day before, I've kind of lost my days. I, during the monologue, I said this is will cut both ways. I applauded the governor for doing it, and I'll tell you why. I think they're going to embrace some of what the Sewage and Water Board has done under the leadership of Ghassan Corbin. Uh, I have met with Ghassan several times privately, had had big conversations about what's going on and why. I think he's got his hands around it, uh, the way he inherited this organization or how he inherited this organization. This organization was down and out, no doubt about it. And I think that they've made some improvements. I kind of focused on this, and I'd love to hear from you, Irvin, as you, to your thoughts. If this governor, with this executive order, can break the, you know, the situation down of this mixed governance model where DPW is part of 
you know, manages part of the system in the state and, and um, Sewage and Water Board the other and can create the synergy necessary by eliminating DPW, moving, moving it under Sewage and Water Board. If he only accomplished that, in my mind, that would be huge. Your thoughts? I believe if he's there to complement the system and not gain control, a power struggle of any type, if he can complement it, I'm okay with it. But I'm going to yeah. be redundant here. What's on his table right now? The 48th rated education system in the U.S. Get the teachers in Louisiana up to just the southern regional average. Hold them accountable. Let's give these kids a chance to make it in the real world. Louisiana, again, second largest per capita population at or below the federal poverty level. We got to deal with minimum wage. We got to bring business into the state for uh, employment that pays good wages. He's got things on the table right now that uh, Louisiana needs. These, those two things I just mentioned will do more to wipe down crime than a lot of the bills that were just passed last week. I'll give it back. Well, you kind of you're kind of moving to a broader topic than what we started on. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, you, you know, as a leader of this state, you got to be able to walk and chew gum and you can deal with a lot of these issues. He's going to have a pretty broad legislative package that's going to be coming up for the regular session. And I think he wanted to get involved in the sewage and water board thing because, I, uh, you know, you have the mayor sits as a chairman of the sewage and water board. You have a number of other political appointees that are that are there. Not really as many subject matter experts that you may or may not want to have on there. I I would fall on the side of having more, not less, um, and and less people that are politically involved in city government, and you know, and getting more technical about these things and and being able to market whatever the strategy is going to be. Um, I'm going to wait and see on this one. I I I thought it was a I applauded him for doing it. I think we we have a bastardized governance model that needs to be changed sooner rather than later. And, um, you know, for that reason, and I think they're going to end up embracing a lot of what Gassan Corbin has done. Uh, You know, the makeup of the board, you got a lot of intelligent cheerleaders for the city on that that, uh, committee that's going to be looking at this. I don't think anybody wants to make it worse. I think they want to make it better. Thank you so much, Irving, for the call. Have a great weekend. We will be right back after the break. We'll check in with Ian Hoke. He's in for Scoot again today. So we'll check in with him to see what he has coming your way. Stay with us. This is Newell on WWL. Ian Hoke joins us. He's coming your way on Free For All Friday. Hey, Newell. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, my Uh, friend. Is it Exodus all over again, man? (laughs) The plague. The plague is coming, Newell. There's going to be more than a trillion, with a T, cicadas that are going to hatch this year in a double-brewed event. What's that mean for Americans and our crops and our orchards? We're going to talk to Gene Kritsky, who is the author of a book called The Tale of Two Broods, and he's also a professor at St. Joe's University in Cincinnati. We'll separate cicada fact from cicada fiction, uh, talk about some cicada stuff. Then uh, it's going to be All a right. big weekend in Kenner, you know, with Fiesta Italiana starting today. We're going to talk to Greg Buisson, who's going to give us the details out there. That's all going to be happening at the uh, Rivertown in Kenner. And uh, also, I'm really excited to talk about Sotol. I know you're a wine guy. Have you ever heard of Sotol? 
No. What is that? So tall, and it's fine if you haven't. Most people haven't, but it's a it's a real niche type of liquor that they make in northern Mexico, and it's kind of picking up speed here in the states. It's gaining some popularity. I read an article about that just just two weeks ago. So then you you know just a little bit. So there's a strange thing that happened that Senator Cornyn in Texas has arranged that changed the way you're able to label and sell those things so tall in the U.S., but it also changed the way that we're getting bourbon that's made in Mexico. So, I don't know, we have a lot to talk about. There's trade policy, it's got alcohol involved. It's going to be a great show. Stick around. Thanks so much. All righty, Ian's coming your way. Stay tuned. Have a great weekend. See you on Monday. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.